Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 27, Total Victory. Last time we ended with the passing away of Pope Cyril in 444 AD and the ascension of Pope Dioscorus. Pope Dioscorus was probably a native of Alexandria and was in his mid to late 40s when he became a Pope. Not much else is known about his early life. We do not know much about his education, his relationship with the monks in Egypt, or the circumstances of his introduction to Pope Cyril. What we know is that he got in contact with Pope Cyril and rose to be his secretary and archdeacon. He was in the Council of Ephesus and was involved with all the events surrounding and after the council. He seems also to have been well liked and respected at Alexandria, as his ascension was smooth and we do not hear of any opposition to his elevation. He only ran into a minor problem with a priest named Athanasius, who happened to be Pope Cyril's nephew. Either the priest was corrupt and accumulated too much wealth, which Pope Dioscorus then confiscated, or, as Bob Dioscorus' opponents claimed, he was minding his own business, and Bob Dioscorus targeted and persecuted him out of greed. Either way, the priest and at least one bishop did not get along with Bob Dioscorus, but for now, their discontent was a minor local issue that no one really cared about. Also, as it was traditional, once Bob Dioscorus was elevated, he sent a letter to the Pope in Rome, informing him with the news, standard procedures. The Pope in Rome was Leo, a very powerful personality who will stay with us for a bit, so he is kind of important to keep in mind. Pope Leo, since day one of his papacy, have been asserting the primacy of the Roman See against all comers. He literally considered himself to be the messenger of St. Peter, and his words are the same as St. Peter's words. For now, though, this was mainly playing out in the West, with the now very irrelevant Western Emperor declaring, quote, Whatever the authority of the Apostolic See has enacted, or may hereafter enact, shall be law for all. Anyway, Lee responded to the introduction letter with the usual formalities and then added some patronizing advice 
about doctrinal points as if counseling an inexperienced subordinate. Dioscorus was told that he can feel free to celebrate the liturgy twice on the same day, if necessary, and several other technical clergy ordaining points. The tone was definitely unusual, but Bob Dioscorus probably just laughed about it and told his clerk to file the letter away, and life moved on. For the next four years, there was the usual intrigue in the eastern half between ballasts and bishops, and Bob Dioscorus managed to deal with it relatively well. Bob Dioscorus had two objectives throughout his papacy. One, the complete elimination of all Nestorian soul. At this front, he considered all those who speak of two natures to be crypto-Nestorians that should be removed from their position. Second, to continue the leadership of Alexandria in the East, particularly over both Antioch and Constantinople. At this front, in Antioch, Bishop Dominus was a much weaker figure than John of Antioch, and he could not keep his bishops in line. A group of them kept dancing around in a story and saw it as close as possible without falling in. These guys spoke harshly of the now deceased Pope Cyril and emphasized the two natures of Christ. Notable among them was two bishops, Ibasit Edessa and Suderet of Cyrus. Both Dioscorus kept pressuring to have them removed. His pressure was through Dominus directly, which fell in deaf ears, and through the monks in Syria, where he was more successful, and the population of Edessa kicked Ibath out of the city. Where his acumen really shined so was the capital. As always, the urban monks of Constantinople were very influential, both as holy men who decided what is orthodox and what is not, and as a backdoor access to the palace. Both their scores cultivated an excellent relationship with the most influential of those monks, ahead of a monastery named Eutychius. Eutychius was the spiritual father of a eunuch named Chrysiphius, who was very close to the emperor. This, in effect, completely aligned the palace and Bobdai's course, and unlike Bob Cyril, with his initial tense relationship with Theodosius, Bobdai's course had an excellent relationship with the emperor. On the other hand, the bishop of Constantinople, assigned to replace Nestorius, have died, and a new one named Flavian was assigned. And as always, Flavian was having trouble controlling the monks. Basically, the monks could access the palace independent of him, and especially when it came to Eutychius, he was a rival for determining church policy. Complicating this picture, Chrysiphius also managed to exclude Bulgaria from decision-making which obviously did not make her very happy. So on one side, we have the Augusta Bulgaria and Bishop Flavian of Constantinople, who found themselves excluded from the ballast circle of influence, and as such, they found common cause in despising both Eutychius and Chrysiphius. Both the scorers for his part 
was to take as a sponsor and patron, which was theologically convenient as well, since Eutychius was very pro-Cyril in his theological stance. Just in case you forgot, the emperor's wife is banished to the Holy Lands after losing a power struggle with Bulgaria. She is ready to oppose whatever Bulgaria will support, but she is a bit irrelevant at this moment. After four years of this arrangement, Bishop Flavian finally concluded that Eutychius is a menace and a troublemaker in the service of Pope Dioscorus, and he had to go. A fiery bishop, who as a layman was given Nestorius' help 20 years earlier, was recruited by Flavian to accuse Eutychius of heresy. The heresy Eutychius was accused of was teaching that Christ had one nature, where the humanity of Christ was lost in his divinity. Eutychius was not really a theologian, and his thoughts were more or less Cyril good and Storius bad. Cyril said one nature, so it's one nature. So when a local synod assembled to look into the matter, Eutychius sort of had no chance. He was asked if he believed in the two natures of Christ, to which he replied too by something along the lines Cyril never said so. His exact position was confessing two natures before the union, one after it, which was sort of a new formula, at least expressed this way. As a reminder, Pope Cyril has originally maintained that Christ is, quote, one incarnate nature of God the Word that is fully human and fully divine, to which he modified too a union of two natures have been effected, and therefore we confess one Christ, one Son, one Lord, in the formula of reunion with Antioch. Eutychius was not really that far away from what Cyril had said, but as we have seen, heresy was a nice way to get rid of your political rivals. And to be fair, he probably had minimized the humanity of Christ, but when cornered in the council, he was happy to walk it back. Anyway, the local council assembled, excommunicated, and removed him from his position as a head of a monastery in November 448 AD. But if Flavian thought that Eutychius' influence would die with the excommunication, he miscalculated badly. Eutychius did not go quietly. He sent letters to Alexandria, Salonika, Jerusalem, Rome, and perhaps unwisely, Ravenna, deploring the injustice that he has suffered in the hands of Flavian. Curiously, he did not send a letter to Antioch, perhaps already anticipating that they were above his one nature, Christology. The fact that he complained to Ravenna and Rome in the same time was annoying to no end to Leo, who clearly saw himself as the only voice that mattered in the issue. Leo filed an angry letter to Flavia because he did not inform him that he excommunicated Eutychius. Pope Leo refused the label heretic and basically called Eutychius an old fool. Eutychius also complained to the one person who really mattered, the emperor. Sodosius, firmly in the hands of the eunuch Chrysiphius, 
decided to call a council to look into the matter. The council was to be held in Ephesus, a place traditionally hostile to the Sea of Constantinople, and to be headed by Pope Dioscorus, a known political supporter of Eutychius. Pseudosius' policy when it came to councils stayed the same. He is to stay away to avoid any accusation of preferring the bishops and send the palace official for the practical arrangement. Crucially so, he banned Theodoret of Cyrus, who we mentioned earlier, from attending, based on his Nestorian sympathies, and limited the number of bishops an archbishop can bring with him. This is kind of important, as Theodosius held the council as a sacred assembly, where men of God are to decide doctrinal issues away from imperial hands. His role was to call for it, organize it, and keep it fair, not to use it to achieve an already pre-stated policy goal. Of course he wanted a certain outcome, and from a distance he tried to influence the council to adopt his preferred outcome, which was at this instance the readmission of Eutychius. But he was ready to accept whatever the council gives him. He would be the last emperor to follow this councillor theory. After him, emperors would be very hands-on with the councils, essentially dropping any veneer of separation between palace and church. To go back to our narrative, Flavian correctly calculated that the council is bad news for him, and he tried everything in his power to cancel it. He sent to Bogli in Rome, asking him to appeal to the emperor to counsel the council, and just have the matter settled by him. Boblio replied with his opinion in the matter, which, as far as he was concerned, was enough to settle the issue. In a series of letters, the most famous of them was to be known to history as the tomb of Leo, he asserted the following. 1. Christ has two natures, and Eutychius have erred when he said one nature after the union. 2. He berated Flavian for his handling of the matter. 3. There is really no need for a council now, since he has already settled the matter. Boblio had absolutely no idea about all the intrigue and the back and forth going on in the East, with all the theological subtle points. His overriding objective was to assert the primacy of the Roman scene and to that end he acted. Unfortunately for Flavian, the emperor did not think much of what Bob Leo had to say, and determined to go ahead with the council anyway. The council was to go ahead on August 449 AD with 135 bishops, and a Syrian monk named Barsumus who was to represent the monastic opinion. Assembled there, was Pope Dioscorus was the papal legates, Dominus the Bishop of Antioch, Juvenal the Bishop of Jerusalem, and Flavian, Bishop of Constantinople. First, the letter of the emperor summoning the council was read. Then, the papal legates requested that the tomb of Leo be read. Eutychius then interjected 
saying that the papal legates were partial against him, and that his case should be settled first. The bishops present agreed, and Eutychius then laid his case. He produced several works by a theologian named Gregory the Wonderworker and Pope Julius from Rome. This is the same Pope who sheltered St. Athanasius in the conflict with the Arians. He then produced a detailed written faith statement denouncing all the heretics and restating that his thoughts are the same as that of Pope Cyril. Once he ended, Pope Dioscorus asked the bishops, Two natures before the union, one afterwards. Is that not what we all believed? They all shouted in agreement, and Eutychius was declared orthodox. What happened next is one of these occasions in history where specific individuals play an outsized role and forever shape their world and our world. Plainly stated, Pope Dioscorus overplayed his hand. First, he produced a canon from the First Council of Ephesus, which stated that any bishop that teaches a creed other than the one in Nicaea is to be removed and excommunicated. Then, he stated that by introducing the two-nature Christology, Flavian has taught a new creed, and thus he is to be removed and excommunicated. At this point, mayhem ensued. Flavian tried to appeal, but he was shouted down. The papal legates attempted to stop the proceedings, but they too were shouted down. Some bishops stood up to protest, and that's when the troops, with their swords out, walked in, followed by a group of monks under Barsumas. No one was allowed to walk out, and it would be a good idea if everyone just agreed to remove Flavian. We don't want things to get out of hand with the soldier and the monks now, do we? Flavian would then deposed and excommunicated, and the first session of the council ended, but crucially not after Juvenal, the bishop of Jerusalem, who supported that chorus all the way, and was very influential in how things played out, got his reward. Jerusalem was now a patriarchy, equal in rank to Antioch and Constantinople. In addition, part of the Antiochian diocese was given to Jerusalem. The following session of the council was just as bad. The papal legates and dominus of Antioch did not show up. And there, Every single bishop who ever said anything even resembling a two-nature Christology was removed and excommunicated. Dominus of Antioch afterward tried to make a deal with Pope Dioscorus. He was ready to approve all the excommunication in exchange of keeping his own seat. But Pope Dioscorus clearly felt that his approval amounted to nothing and he was excommunicated as well. A couple of months later, Bob Dioscorus' victory was complete and total. Anatolius, his own archdeacon, was appointed to the Bishop of Constantinople. Flavian had been exiled and either died on the way there or shortly after arrival. 
The papal legates and the tomb of Leo disappeared, and no one really cared what Leo had to say. Well, Bulgaria sort of did, but she has lost her influence at the moment. The populace and the monks in Constantinople have wholeheartedly accepted the council. Theodosius was satisfied with the results and asked that Pope Dioscorus send a letter to the whole empire informing them of the results. Leo at Rome was furious, but for the most part, there was not much that he can do. He fired something like 30 different letters within a year to anyone who would listen. Monks who did not get along with Eutychius, Western bishops, the clergy of Constantinople, the Western emperor, literally anybody who would listen. The Council of Ephesus was a robber council, he shouted. Dioscorus is a heretic, he claimed. Accept no bishop but Flavian, he cried. But Bob Dioscorus, for the moment, stood as an imposing figure who alone decided what is orthodox and what is not. And as long as Theodosius was around and supporting him, nothing would change that. Here's the same so. His total victory stood on a feat of clay. It will be useful to us to compare Ephesus 1 and Pope Cyril and Ephesus 2 and Pope Dioscorus. Pope Cyril took great pains not to be forced into conflict with Antioch, and when he did, he bent over backward to reconcile. He reassembled the whole council just to make the papal legates feel important. Even so, practically, he added nothing. He confined his battle to the person of Nestorius and the Tacosiodokos, and did not get carried away in trying to impose the entire Alexandrian theological ideology and the whole empire. Both Dioscorus, on the other hand, rather than concentrate on Eutychius and one theological idea at a time, he went to great lenses to eliminate all potential real and perceived rivals. To depose one rival bishop with the support of other sees, like Pope Theophilus and Pope Cyril did, is one thing. But to depose all rival bishops and snub Roman in the process, well, that is a heavy lift. His success rested on one thing and one thing alone, the support of Theodosius. He put all of his political eggs in that basket. And this was a bad idea. You see, without Theodosius, the whole thing would come crashing down, as there were serious problems that the council created. First, Flavian dying made him a martyr, and many bishops felt that he was treated unfairly. Second, Bulgaria opened a communication line with Leo, and fully supported him. She put it out there that she saw that the council committed, quote, a heretical error. Third, Anatolius, the former protege of Pope Dioscorus and the new bishop of Constantinople, was no puppet. He immediately stood out as an independent figure who was a political force to be reckoned with. Like seriously, Anatolius was a political genius who Pope Dioscorus seriously underestimated. Anatolius' first move was to try 
and get on the good side of both Bulgaria and Bobliya. Unlike both their scores, he knew that power in the capital is an elusive thing that can shift very quickly. He made a deal with Leo and Bulgaria. In return for accepting Leo's tomb as Orthodox, he would be recognized as the legitimate bishop of Constantinople. Crucially so, as part of the deal, the tomb was to be accepted with Cyril's writing, not the tomb by itself. Again, Anatolius correctly calculated that loyalty to Cyril ran very high, and even the perception of opposing Cyril's theology would meet serious opposition. Now, theologically, that did not really make much sense. Cyril's writing and the tomb of Leo kind of contraindicated each other. Both clearly held that Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. But for the theological issue of the day, that is, nature or natures of Christ, they clearly differed. But that did not matter. Anatolius felt that he can accept them both and satisfy both parties. If someone pushed an actual theology, he can just pick and choose which parts to emphasize and which parts to minimize. You know, pragmatism. The letter finalizing the deal was received by Bulgaria and Seudosius on July 15, 450 AD, about a year after the council. Anatolius's timing could not have been better. You see, exactly two weeks later, Pope Dioscorus's basket ripped open and all the eggs came crashing down. On July 28, 450 AD, Seudosius has a freak riding accident and dies at the young age of 49. When he died, he had no sons, and thus succession became an issue. The two most powerful figures were naturally Bulgaria and the eunuch Chrysiphius. There was also an army general named Asbar, who we did not get to introduce yet, but we will in future episodes. That power struggle and what will come out of it, the Council of Chalcedon, is quite a story that is still playing out to this day. We will get there by next week. On other news, I started working on the next special episode, a historical analysis of the movie Agora. Agora is a historical movie that tells the story of the struggle between Orestes, Hypatian, and Bob Cyril that we went through in episode 23. This episode will most likely be a collaboration with another history podcaster, with a tentative date of early to mid-October. If you watch the movie and have specific questions about events there, feel free to reach out via the usual social media avenues. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next week.